I like to imagine having a playground at the top of the deep isolation borehole where my kids and I can go play. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to another Pandemic 2020 edition of the Business for Good podcast. We received a higher-than-normal response rate to the last episode about the Live Kindly Co.'s raising of $200 million to advance plant-based chicken, and it was awesome to hear from so many folks who were inspired by that story. If you didn't catch it, you will definitely do yourself a favor while sheltering in place to go check it out. You could say the story really had wings. Plant-based wings, of course. Speaking of sheltering in place, Some states are already beginning to open up their economies after weeks of shutting down to try to flatten the corona curve. But there are some things that we really want to keep sheltered in place and never come out. No, I'm not talking about whoever your favorite politician to hate is. Rather, I am talking about nuclear waste. You see, there are hundreds of thousands of pounds of nuclear waste largely stored right by the hundreds of nuclear power plants around the world. And all of that extremely dangerous material, which will remain extremely dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years, has no permanent place to go. In the US, the government allows private companies to temporarily store nuclear waste, but it's illegal for private companies to actually dispose of it. That is the government's job, and it just hasn't happened. Enter an environmentalist named Liz Muller. Liz's environmental cred needs no embellishing. Not only is she from Berkeley, California, she also co-founded and runs her own environmental nonprofit organization. But in addition to that charity, Liz has also co-founded a for-profit company, Deep Isolation, which has pioneered, she says, a safe method of storing nuclear waste deep underground. And as you'll soon hear, She means really deep. Liz argues that such storage, which would still allow for the material to be recovered if desired, would keep ground-dwelling earthlings like Homo sapiens and other living beings safe from our civilization's nuclear waste for perhaps a million years into the future. And she's already attracting venture capital from investors who've pumped $14 million into her startup. These social impact investors are betting that Liz will be able to make a real impact herself by helping solve one of society's most intractable problems, safe storage of nuclear waste. So listen to Liz's tale and prepare to be inspired by one smart environmentalist using an innovative business idea to help the planet and all of its inhabitants. I now bring you Deep Isolation CEO, Liz Mower. Liz, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. Happy to be here. It is a real pleasure for me to be talking with you. I saw your coverage on NPR like a year ago or something about the technologies that you're pursuing. And I was so excited about it. It seemed like such a cool thing that somebody is trying to innovate in a space that uh, I presume has lacked innovation for quite some time. And so I've wanted to talk with you for a while, but I'm really glad to have you on the show. So first tell me, you know, we're going to link to that NPR story in the show notes, Liz, but first tell me, how'd that come about? How did NPR even find out about what you were doing? So the NPR coverage was just after we did our demo. So we did a demonstration of our nuclear waste disposal technology um, in January 2019, um, and the NPR coverage was soon after that. All right, cool. Well, we're going to get all to that demo. I can't wait to talk with you about it. It's very exciting. But let's just go back to the beginning here. Like Humans have been creating nuclear waste for how long now? I presume about 70 or so years. Is that right? 
Yeah, it's it goes all the way back to the the earliest days of uh, nuclear weapons programs, and then more recently, um, nuclear as a source of uh, electricity. So, what do we do with it? I mean, all the the you know the spent fuel rods and all that back from like the Manhattan Project uh, through the present. Like, where is it? So unfortunately, there's not a great answer to that. We, it's been piling up. So um, initially, it's been kept uh, in the cooling pools, at least for spent nuclear fuel. That's the primary place it's been. Um, as the pools have filled, um, they've needed to be moved out of that, and they've been going into temporary storage um, because there currently is no disposal solution. So what is nuclear waste? Like just for somebody who has absolutely no idea like how nuclear energy even works, can you give a layperson's uh, description of how we produce nuclear energy and what the waste is? Sure. So nuclear energy um, is, well, nuclear fuel is, um, is, is, is small ceramic-like um, pellets, really, that are then bundled into fuel rods that are then bundled into fuel assemblies. These are moved into the nuclear reactor, and they are the source of fuel um, for the creation of electricity. Um, when they're used up, they're moved out of the reactor, um, but they are very hot. They're very dangerous. Um, they emit radioactivity. It could kill you if you were to be near it. Um, those are moved into the, the pools, as I said, where they will cool for a number of years. Um, and then eventually those need to be moved into a disposal solution. And that's the part of the problem that we don't yet have solved. Hmm. And so when you say hot, you mean it's temperature hot, not just radiation hot? It's both. It's both. Okay. Um, so, you know, for people then who are thinking about this, I'm, I'm envisioning there are liquid water pools. You're putting these spent fuel rods in there. They're hot. They need to cool for, you said years. Is it decades? Is it years? Like how long until they are a temperature that's somewhat handleable? So it's a minimum of a few years, typically mm -hmm. three to five. Wow. Um, in many cases, it ends up staying there for longer because there is no other place uh, convenient to put it. So how much nuclear waste is there? So globally, um, we're looking at about 500,000 tons, hmm. um, and it's a growing problem. Um, yeah, it should, it's worth pointing out that that's not a particularly large number when you look at other types of waste. And the reason for that is that nuclear waste is very dense. So it's, it doesn't require a massive amount of space in order to, to house it. Um, but because it's dangerous, because it's so dense, um, it, it needs very careful full disposal, um, it is potentially dangerous for a million years. Wow, a million years. So we're thinking about ways to contain this that not only are going to uh, last as long as, the, let's say, the government or the corporation that's in charge of it, but really beyond our own civilization, presumably. That's right. And, and the reason that that is, is so, so, so the, the, the international consensus is that if you look at where things are going to be in a million years. You really don't know. You ask me what, <laughs> what 
what Berkeley is going to look like in a million years or Sacramento is going to look like, we have pretty much no idea. Um, but you go deep, deep, deep down underground, and now you're getting to rock formations that don't change over geologic timeframes, so over millions of years. And so the international consensus has always been that the best place for the long-term disposal of nuclear waste is going to be in deep geologic isolation. So that's agreed on. Getting it there has been the problem, um, but the agreement of, of where it should go, that that is um, well accepted. Have there been any uh, proposals ever for storing it even underwater somewhere? Yes, that's been considered. Um, it's not currently um, one of the ideas that's well accepted. For some reason, I, I've not read the book in a long time, but in the book uh, by Alan Weissman, The World Without Us, he has a chapter on um, what would happen. Well, the whole book is about what would happen if humans ceased to exist. And one of the chapters is about nuclear power plants. And um, I think he I think he mentioned underwater disposal as one option that people were considering. But this book came out, geez, probably at, at least a decade ago. Um, but let's just talk, but before we get Liz, to talking about what your company, Deep Isolation, is doing. Um, many, many people, if they know anything about this, they've heard of Yucca Mountain. Um, but can you give us a, a, just a brief background on what is Yucca Mountain, what's the importance of it, and what's the status on that right now? Sure. So um, I mentioned that the international consensus is that we need deep geologic uh, isolation for nuclear waste. Um, Yucca Mountain was the U.S. government's approach to do that. So we know it needs to be put into the deep underground somewhere. Um, in the 1980s, the decision was taken that the place that that should be is Yucca Mountain, Nevada. Um, and no other place would be considered until Yucca Mountain was operational. And, um, and that was the U.S. policy. That was the decision that was taken. So what happened? I mean, my recollection is that it wasn't, uh, didn't construction begin like hollowing out this mountain in order to make room for all the nuclear waste that would be ending up there? Yes. So construction did begin. Um, there has been um, a tunnel that has been um, mined out. Um, the the approach is a mined repository. So this is where you have um, you know, people and trucks going underground, and you're 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 quite literally making very large tunnels, um, you know, 18 feet in diameter, um, that you have people and trucks going into, so that you can bring the waste down there and then keep it safely out um, of, uh, of the biosphere, really. So why, are we, why have we not yet filled up Yucca Mountain with tons of nuclear waste? So there's a number. There's been a number of problems um, with with Yucca Mountain and with other approaches to to mined repositories. Um, one of the big challenges with mined repositories is that first of all, they are extremely expensive. Um, you're looking at at least a hundred million, hundred billion dollars. Excuse me, um, is the estimated cost um, to build Yucca Mountain. Mm. Um, when you're talking that kind of money, it means that you really can't afford to do a lot of them. So mm -hmm. you're looking at probably one location for the majority of a country's uh, nuclear waste inventory, which means you're going to be bringing it there from many places around the country. Um, that means that you're asking a, a location and a state to essentially be the dumping ground, if you will, um, for a whole country. And, and that, that's a hard ask. Um, it also, and, and 
recently, um, the people in Nevada have decided that they don't want this. Um, so there's been very uh, significant um, opposition to, to, to Yucca Mountain from the state of Nevada. Mm. Um, the other challenge is that it means you have to transport the waste from many different locations, in some places um, all the way across the country. Um, and that's another thing that people object to. Not only do they not want nuclear waste in their backyard, but they also don't want it transported across the roads. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine if I lived in Nevada, maybe I would also have a similar not in my backyard type phenomenon. But I presume, you know, almost any community anywhere on the planet is going to say that they don't want nuclear waste stored near them, um, even if, you know, even if experts are saying that it's totally safe to do. But um, let's talk, Liz, about what you are doing about this. So, you know, we know the problem. You've got you know, huge amounts of maybe, uh, well, you could point on that it may not be huge compared to other types of waste, but you have lots of dangerous nuclear waste that's piling up at hundreds of locations around the world. And right now there's no permanent solution for it. It's just sitting there either in pools or in uh, containers and it's radioactive and we got to do something with it. So uh, what is it that you are doing at Deep Isolation and what led you to do this type of work in the first place? Yeah, so so we're... Um we're really doing something that's relatively, um, and I hate to use the word simple because nothing in this industry is ever simple, but we're using directional drilling. So the, the consensus has always been deep geologic isolation, but up until recently, most people thought that the only way to get something into deep geologic isolation was to build a mine. Um, now with recent advances in directional drilling, we can go very deep. We can go a mile, we can go two miles deep if we need to, and we can then turn and go horizontally, which gives us a large amount of space, um, which is isolated um, from the surface and a good potential place to put nuclear waste. And so you're boring holes. And what's the innovation? Like, I know you say it's relatively simple, but what is the innovation that deep isolation is pioneering? So the innovation is really the combination of using directional drilling for nuclear waste disposal. Hmm. Um, and there's there's all kinds of you know sub subpoints on that, but really this is you know one of the advantages we think is that the technology for drilling is already mature. Hmm. So we're not creating something from scratch. We're using something that the oil and gas industry does all the time on a regular basis um, and simply adapting it to something that is brand new and has never been done before. What's your background, Liz? Why did you decide to start the company? So my, my background is really um, in a passion for the environment. Um, for the past 10 years, I've ran, run a nonprofit called Berkeley Earth um, that tries to solve big environmental problems. Um, focused largely on global warming. And we uh, collected large amounts of data on global warming, and we completely redid the global temperature record that's the background of what we understand um, the global temperature um, of, of the world to be. Um, we also more recently got into air pollution um, and, uh, and now have one of the best web websites available for data on global air pollution. Um, this, this grew out of that. This grew out of that passion for doing something um, that can help the world, something for the environment. Um, and nuclear waste disposal seemed like an area that, first of all, needs a solution. And it seemed like an area where 
a small group of people who really are passionate about doing something have the possibility of really changing the world. That's great, Liz. That's really great. Uh, you know, so many of the entrepreneurs who I talk with for this particular podcast come out of either the environmental movement or the animal welfare movement or um, sometimes the public health sector. And it's really impressive to see uh, so many folks who have been on the nonprofit side also recognize that we have to have innovative business solutions in order to solve the most pressing problems that humanity faces. So, uh, you know, let me ask you, uh, right, when did this company get formed and how uh, how many people were there at the beginning with you? So the initial idea was in 2015. Um, I think we didn't officially form the company until 2016. Um, and it was just two of us. It was, it was me and my dad. Um, he had the initial aha technology moment, um, but it was immediately an outgrowth of the work that we were doing as part of Berkeley Earth. Um, we were participating in a call about what to do about nuclear waste. Um, and um, we had a fairly good understanding of what what directional drilling was. Um, and so that it was the two of us, it was initially him. And then the two of us just thinking about whether there was a business that could, could be created out of this. Huh. So you and your dad are both the co-founders of the company. Yes. And we're also the co-founders of the nonprofit. That huh. Wow. Came out of. Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, you hear about co-founders having disputes or, or you might hear about a parent helping to fund uh, their offspring's uh, business ventures with becoming an early like friends and family investor. But being a co-founder, how's that worked out for you being a, a co-founder with your dad? Or, or can you not say freely with him listening to this episode? <laughs> no, it's it's been really, really good. And I think that part of the reason it's so good is that he and I are so different from one another. So he is a physicist. He is a scientist. Scientist, he understands technology um, in a way that you know he 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 said, and he was serious about this once that I was stressing him out with all my business conversations. And could he please just take a break and go do some differential equations, please? <laughs> Um, and, and that's, that, that's who he is. And so having someone who loves that, that sort of work with a passion, um, which I don't, I, I, I like science. I, I majored in mathematics. I, I understand the technology, but I don't have a passion for it in the same way that he does. Um, I have a passion for the, the, the business side. So how do you turn this into an organization that can actually do things that can actually work with governments? How do you build a team that, that those are the sorts of things that that I like, um, as well as how do you work with environmental groups and how do you build an organization that is responsive to people's needs? Nice. Very nice, Liz. Well, whenever I hear about people who major in math, it was something that was very difficult for me in school. And so um, the, the my greatest contribution to math is telling the following joke, which I did not even make up myself, but I do love to tell it, which is for a math major, hopefully you'll appreciate it. All right, Liz, you ready? What did zero, what did zero say to eight? Cool belt. There you go. If, if you have to think... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to hear from listeners who don't get it and then I'll have to explain it. I can't wait. Apparently the best jokes are the ones you have to explain. Um, so uh, speaking of numbers, you all, according to your website, have raised $14 million for deep isolation so far from, yes. from venture investors. But let me just ask you, I mean, right now, federal law prohibits private companies from storing nuclear waste. How do you persuade investors to invest $14 million in a company whose very premise 
is to do something that's currently prohibited by federal law? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, and a point of clarity, uh, federal law currently prohibits private companies from disposing of nuclear waste, but not storing nuclear hmm. waste. Okay. So, tell me, so tell, that, me what, tell me why it matters. Yeah, no, it's it's an it's an interesting and important distinction, um, and this is because um, the U.S. government is really the only entity that can take ultimate responsibility for making sure that nuclear waste is safe for a million years. Um, I mean, you might you might question whether even the U.S. government can can take on that sort of responsibility, but certainly a private company can't. So, so when you're talking about disposal, it really has to be the, the government that takes responsibility. In terms of the temporary storage, um, the U.S. government has not delivered on its promises to take the waste from the utilities, from the reactors where it is now, and bring it to an ultimate disposal location. Um, for that reason, it's it's being handled right now by utilities and private companies that are figuring out how and where to store it while we wait for a disposal solution. Hmm, okay. And so... Um Right now, you don't believe that the work that you're doing would require a change in federal law then in order to actually commercialize your services? So that's correct. So as long as we are calling it storage, Mm -hmm. then we don't think we need a a change in federal law. Um, Interestingly, what what we think we can do is um, put it essentially into disposal. So this this is a location that is safe for a million years. And we can show that as we as we do it, even though we're getting it licensed um, for the temporary storage. And then at some point down the line, um, when we're able to change the law, you're now able to call it disposal and it doesn't actually need to move. Have there been efforts in Congress to actually change that law? Yes, there have. Yes. I, I, I think that um, I think we need a win first. I think it's going to be hard to change the law until people really see that something can be done, that this is not an intractable problem. I think many, many people still believe that this is hopeless. Um, in fact, the first few years that we were in business, I can't even begin to tell you how many nuclear waste experts told us to get out of the business because mm-hmm. nothing here ever, ever changes. Um, so I think I think we need a win first. But I think once we have that win, once we have uh, some waste somewhere in the world that has been put into deep isolation, I think that provides an opportunity for people to really see that that things can change and that will then help us change the law. Okay. So speaking of wins, Liz, let's go back to what you referenced at the beginning of our conversation about this uh, demo that you did back in 2019. So what was it and why was it so important? Um, yeah, so we did a demonstration of our technology. Um, we uh, put a, um, a canister uh, that did not have any nuclear waste in it, but simulated what it would look like um, about um, half a mile deep underground um, in a horizontal drill hole. Um, we released it, left it there for a little while, and then um, sometime later went back and, and pulled it out again. Um, that was important in part. So, so the two reasons, really. Um, first of all, um, there was some, there was a belief um, a year ago that what goes down a borehole can never come back out again. Um, and that's in part due to work that had been done on vertical borehole, boreholes. So not 
having the horizontal um, section that we have in, in our vision. But if you just use a vertical borehole, then you actually have nuclear waste potentially stacking on top of itself and there's some risk of crushing. And it could be hard to retrieve it if, if, you, if you then want to. Um, but that's not the, tr- the case with horizontal boreholes. In fact, it's um, relatively straightforward to retrieve something that's down there. This is something that um, the oil and gas industry does um, regularly. So that's part of what we were showing. But I think the other part of what we were showing, which was that, uh, which is perhaps even more important than the, the technology itself, was that a private company can actually do something in a space where most people have failed. And I, I mentioned the, the the warnings we had early on, don't get into this business, nothing can ever get done. Um, not that long ago, the U.S. Department of Energy tried to do a demonstration. They tried to do a demonstration of nuclear waste disposal um, in vertical boreholes. Um, they said they were going to do this in North Dakota. It got shut down because of public protests. They said, okay, we're going to learn from that. We're going to try again. We're going to do it in South Dakota. That got shut down again because of public protests. They said, okay, well, let's try it in a bunch of different locations around the country. That started moving forward and it got shut down by politics. So, um, so there, there was this sort of knowledge, this common knowledge that in the United States, it is impossible to do a demonstration of nuclear waste disposal. Um, we went out and we did it and we had the support of the local community where we did the demonstration. We had attendance by environmentalists, by environmental groups, um, and representatives of many different, um, we had Indian tribes, we had international participation. Um, and, and so we, we, we essentially did something that most people thought was impossible. And I think that was really the first milestone that we hit that started changing people's mindset about nuclear waste. And I think since then, in the past year, it has started to shift and people are starting to think that they're this can be done. Um, since then, we've aligned, um, we've lined up some of our partners, um, including uh, with Bechtel um, and with NAC, um, and that only that only emphasizes even more that this is a real effort that we have real serious people um, working with us who have been in this industry for a very long time um, and that are used to working with governments. So I think I think together the demo plus the the, the partnerships that we've aligned um, have really convinced people that this is serious and and that we we can move forward. Just briefly, Liz, um, you mentioned these partnerships being so important, and you mentioned two entities, Bechtel and NAC. What are those two entities? So Bechtel is a uh, massive um, construction and engineering company um, with global reach. Um, it's uh, extremely well established, um, has had relationships with government customers, um, you know, in some cases for 100 years. So, um, you know, big, big, big company, very serious um, and very conservative. Um, and, and so the fact that a company like that is now taking deep isolation so seriously um, and working with us on, on the solutions, I think is very reassuring for, for our government customers. 
Great. So uh, you mentioned that it has to be retrievable. Like to, I think a common sense view with that is uninformed would just say, don't you want this as far away from us as possible? We don't want to retrieve it. We want it unretrievable. Why is it so important that you have to not only be able to store it safely, but also retrieve it? Yeah, it is a requirement. I think that, um, and, and, and it can be done both ways. So you can, you can put it deep underground in a way that is retrievable and you can put it deep underground in a way that is not retrievable. It really depends on, on, on how you do that. Um, but it's, it's a requirement currently that it needs to be retrievable for up to 50 years. So that is the requirement that, that we will meet. Um, in terms of why it's a requirement, I think there've been some ideas that, um, well, a couple of things, first of all, the fuel may be useful for other things someday. Um, in fourth generation nuclear reactors, for example. Um, and then there's also the idea that maybe the community where it is right now isn't going to feel the same way about it in in 20 years that they do today. Or maybe a better storage option may become available, right? Like maybe right. there's some some other way that we can treat this that might be preferable to you know what we're doing in 2020 instead in 2030 or 2040. Um, uh, that's really interesting. Um, and it makes me, you know, wonder, like we talk now about upcycling all of these like so-called waste streams in agriculture. And it makes me wonder, like, is there also another innovative idea in not just uh, isolating the nuclear waste, but finding some other use for it? Like whether it would be in another type of, as you say, fourth generation reactor or maybe something else that could be done with it. I don't know. I'm, I don't obviously have any idea, but um, maybe there is something else. Have, has anybody talked about that, finding some useful life for this type of waste? Yeah, there's a lot of smart people who are thinking about that problem. Hmm. Um, I think that um, there, there's there's quite a few ideas um, and um, I, you know, I'm not going to comment on, on, on them, um, but I will say that they would not need or use the you know, only a small portion of the existing waste. Hmm. The amount of waste that we have right now is, is very significant. Mm -hmm. Um, and even if these, um, ideas move forward, um, on a pretty significant scale, we're still going to need a disposal solution for the rest. Interesting. So we were talking a few minutes ago, Liz, about Congress and whether there'll be changes in federal law on this. Is there a partisan divide on this or is it more geographically divided? Yeah, remarkably, um, I think that this is one of the areas where there is bipartisan support for innovation, for um, I think there's a general widespread recognition that the status quo uh, isn't working. Um, I think if, that there... If, if only that were sufficient to get Congress to act on an issue. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, I think, so I think there, and, and I think that both sides like the idea of innovation. I think that there's an appreciation for lower cost options. Um, I think there's an appreciation for improved safety. And I think there's an appreciation for not leaving this to the next generation. So I think really this is this is one of the areas where there is bipartisan support um, and, and we're grateful for that. You know, after the Fukushima disaster and then the popularity of HBO's show Chernobyl, which I, I'm sure you've watched, um, I imagine there are just a lot of people who are just simply skeptical of nuclear power at all. And yeah. obviously, you know, you don't have to be 
for or against nuclear power to think we need a solution to all the nuclear waste that's piling up. That's just a reality. But what's your thought on it? Do you have thoughts about nuclear power compared to other types of like uh, solar or geothermal or wind? And, and what do you want people to know about nuclear that maybe they don't know right now? Yeah, it's a good question. And to be honest, the more I learn about it, the more I'm not so sure that I feel quietly as strongly about this as I as I thought I did. Um, I think your point is is I mean, all sources of energy have advantages and disadvantages. And um, one thing that is clear is that one of the big problems with nuclear power is the unsolved nuclear waste problem. And so without getting into comparison of advantages and disadvantages, um, what I can say is that I think this is a solvable problem. I think we can solve the nuclear waste problem. And then whether or not there's going to be a future for nuclear power, let's leave that for for a separate conversation with someone other other than myself. <laughs> okay, uh, well, if you don't mind, I do want to just drill down deeper. Uh, pun indefinitely intended on that on this because you say that you used to feel more strongly on it. Which way you felt? I presume you felt like you were opposed to nuclear energy, and now your position has started to modify that you're not as opposed to it as you used to be. Or am I misreading that? No, it's somewhat the other way around, to, oh, to tell okay. you the truth. So, um, yeah, I, and and I would say more of a softening. I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm at the point where I'm changing my mind on anything, but I think I'm starting to understand the issues better than I used to. Um, one of the things deep isolation is very serious about is talking to people about nuclear waste. And as we've been out there talking to people who currently have nuclear waste in their communities, um, I think I'm learning a lot. And it hasn't, I wouldn't say it's changed my mind, but I think um, I'm, I'm appreciating a perspective that I didn't really understand um, before I started having those conversations. Well, I always admire when people change their minds. So it sounds like you may not have yet changed your mind, but it sounds like you're open to it at least. So congratulations on that, Liz. Um, I And it's something that I think a lot about, uh, you know, somebody who's very concerned about climate myself. Obviously, I want to be able uh, to have humanity wean ourselves off of fossil fuels, um, but renewables are such a tiny little portion of the energy pie right now. And it's hard to envision how we get off of fossil fuels without something like nuclear. Um, but I, I don't know enough about the topic to have really a, like a hardened point of view on, on whether nuclear is a, a good source of energy. But um, it seems to me like the climate problem is so severe that any non-emitting energy sources ought to be seriously considered, especially after watching. Did, did you see the Netflix um, Inside Bill's Brain, the docuseries about Bill Gates? No. Uh, it was a pretty interesting three-part series about Bill Gates. And one of the episodes was about um, uh, next generation nuclear. So um, mm. in, instead of fission, fusion uh, energy and, and the differences there, it seemed uh, it was intended to try to make you more comfortable with it. And mm. uh, it had that effect on me. Of course, I would maybe think otherwise if I had seen something with a different point of view. But, um, but anyway, uh, it's worth watching. And uh, yeah. I, found it, I found it quite interesting. Um, but after watching Chernobyl, I also thought, why the heck are we doing this at all? So uh, apparently I'm easily swayed based on what Netflix or HBO show <laughs> I'm, I'm watching at the time. 
Uh, okay, Liz. So, uh, you know, you have started this company. You moved from the nonprofit sector into the for-profit sector. You started this company. You've raised $14 million. You are have done a successful demo of your technology. Hopefully, you'll get to commercializing soon and starting to actually solve some of this problem piece by piece. Um, if somebody's looking at you and thinking, geez, that's really cool what Liz Muller did. I wonder like, how I can be more like her. Are there any resources, whether they are interested in nuclear waste or anything else, uh, are there any resources that you think would be useful for them that may have been useful for you in your journey here? Yeah. So, um, so you know, if you want to really geek out on nuclear waste um, specific issues, um, my favorite resource is Rad Waste Solutions, which is a nuclear waste magazine that comes out uh, twice a year. And I typically read it cover to cover, including the ads. So that's my full on geek um, answer. Um, My perhaps not quite so geeky answer is that um, I think for for pretty much any entrepreneur, I, I know that I I struggled to find books um, and um, resources that were meaningful to me. I think there's a lot available that is pretty generic and you know provides a good basis for starting to think about things, um, but gets harder when it gets down to specifics. So the, the main resource that I've found to be incredibly helpful with those sorts of issues are, are people, are, are reaching out to other people who have done things, um, who have started businesses, who have been in a particular industry before, who've, who've been around the block and, and know the ropes. Um, I think that in our world today, um, we don't really put the stress on mentorship and advisors um, in, in a way that I think um, really is essential for, for any entrepreneur starting out. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I have uh, said before, and we'll say again, you know, for me, like the most useful books relating to business are not really how-to books as much as they're books from people who have succeeded about their stories and especially yeah. about their failures. But yeah. you can't substitute books for experience. You know, imagine if you were trying to, you know, get proficient, for example, at playing soccer, like as many books as you want to read it doesn't substitute for actual experience on the field. And so by, by talking with other players and by getting out there on the field and trying it yourself, I, I think is really going to be the most useful. So uh, I, I certainly am in accord with you uh, on on that issue is. Um, so then uh, finally, and I have to say also, I, I love that there is a nuclear waste solutions magazine. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, I, I, I definitely am going to go look that up and we'll include it in the show notes, of course. Um, so finally, you know, I, I imagine as somebody who's in the entrepreneurial world that you have a lot of ideas of companies that you hope will get started, Liz. So what ideas do you hope somebody else will pursue that you're not pursuing, whether on this topic or on any other that would help to make the world a better place? Yeah. So one area that I think is really ripe for disruption um, right now is higher education. And my secret hope is that somebody will come up with a better system for university education before my kids go to college. Okay. Any ideas on what the areas, like the deficiencies that need to be corrected that you think a new business could could correct? So I, I think part of it is that it just costs too much. I think the, the cost benefit of a university education right now, I mean, you pay a ton, but you don't necessarily get 
the skills that you're going to need if you want to go out into the world and be an entrepreneur or, or have a successful career. So I think there's a mismatch there. Um, I also think that um, this learning by doing thing um, is something that should be emphasized more in in, in education. Um, I appreciate the social dynamics, so I think that is something that we need to to, to keep. Um, but I'm I'm sure there's a better way of lowering the cost, increasing what you get out of it, um, and also really taking advantage of learning by by doing. Great. Well, I, I can assure you, Liz, that um, there are many things that I learned in school that were completely irrelevant to what I've done with the rest of my life. Um, yeah. So, and, and I think about that regularly, actually. Well, um, in case you're looking for a slogan, Liz, um, you know, everybody always says, go hard or go home. You guys can say, go deep or go home. That'll be the, <laughs> the, the deep isolation. If you want to trademark it, do it now because it's now going to be on the show. So you don't want to let anybody else get go deep or go home. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> Very good. Well, Liz, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. It's really cool what you're doing, trying to solve what many would consider an intractable problem. So I'm wishing for all the best for you, your father, and the rest of your colleagues at Deep Isolation. Thank you so much, Paul. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.